Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 23 of Authors on a Podcast Talking Books. I'm your host, David Walters. Today, I have the pleasure of chatting with author Stephen Graham Jones. Stephen, according to himself, is the author of 23 or 25 books or so. He also has nearly 300 short stories published from literary journals to truck enthusiast magazines, from textbooks to anthologies to best of the year annuals. Jones has been an NEA fellow, a Texas Writers League fellow, has won the Texas Institute of Letters Award for Fiction, the Independent Publishers Multicultural Award, the Bram Stoker Award, four This Is Horror Awards, has been a Shirley Jackson Award finalist and a Colorado Book Award finalist, and he's had his work named one of Bloody Disgusting's top 10 horror novels of the year. His areas of interest, aside from fiction writing, are horror and science fiction, fantasy, film, comic books, pop culture, technology, and American Indian studies. Jones received his BA in English and philosophy from Texas Tech University, his MA in English from the University of North Texas, and his PhD from Florida State. Stephen really likes werewolves and slashers. His favorite novels change daily, but Vallis, Love Medicine, Lonesome Dove, It, and The Things They Cared are usually up there somewhere. He is the, is it Avena? Is that right? Yeah. Avena. Okay. Avena Baldwin Professor of English, as well as Professor of Distinction at the University of Colorado Boulder. Aside from teaching fiction and screenwriting workshops, Jones teaches courses on comic books, The Haunted House, The Slasher, The Zombie, and The Werewolf. His fiction navigates the spaces between the commercial and the literary, often using the tropes of horror and fantasy and science fiction in the Western and noir in unconventional ways. He says he's not running out of stories anytime soon either. But he currently lives in Boulder, Boulder, Colorado, which he states is a big change from the West Texas he grew up in. He's married with a couple of kids and probably one too many trucks. And he's also a former KISS Army member. But without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Stephen Graham Jones. Thank you very much. That was a heck of an introduction. I know, it really was. (laughs) I feel like I need to take a sip of water. (laughs) So, uh, So how are you doing today? I'm doing really well. We just, the university just closed down and we all went to remote teaching and, you know, everything else is closing down too, it seems like. So, but it's yeah. a good day besides that. There you go. Yeah, I know. Uh, we just, I keep getting, you know, notifications, especially from like ESPN about NHL shutting down and NBA yeah. and MLB. I mean, it's just like one thing after another. Um, I know at one point they were going to try to do it with like, you know, fanless entertainment. <laughs> I was kind of interested to see how that mm-hmm. would work out, mm-hmm. but they just decided to cancel it all together. So. Yeah, I guess it's yeah. just a matter of time before businesses start doing the same thing. I reckon so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess uh, I'm lucky enough to be in Alabama, which we're one of the last states to get a, a, a confirmed case. So I guess it's like a good and a bad thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yep. So, um, so kind of first, uh, where we're gonna want to start? Can you tell me a little bit about yourself, about growing up, uh, going through school, and kind of any hobbies you had growing up? Yeah, I grew up in mostly West Texas. We lived all over Texas, but we always came came back to the Permian Basin. And hobbies I had growing up, I was really really into knives. I still am really into knives. Um, really into horny toads. Man, I used to. Me and my brother used to go out when we was when I was probably ten years old. My brother would have been seven. We'd go out into the pastures with a five gallon um, bucket, and we just catch horny toads all day. And fill that whole bucket up with horny toads. And at the end of the day, we dump them all out to run back away to, to get caught another day. 
But we'd have so many horny toads in there that the bottom, like six inches of them, would just be dead horny toads. You know, I feel <laughs> feel bad. I feel bad about that now. You don't see them around so much no more. But um, that was a big thing for us. Um, let's see, hobbies when I was a kid. You know, reading, of course, comic books and any um, science fiction and horror and western I could get my hands on, which was plenty. And uh, as I got into high school, trucks became my passion. Trucks and hacky sack and basketball, too. Those were probably my three, three things that carried me through high school. I got you. So why, uh, I guess, why knives and why hacky sacks? <laughs> um, knives, I, I, man, I don't know. I just have always loved blades since I was little. Um, let me think. Why knives? I think they're just so elegant. You know, they don't get, I mean, they can get dull, but you can resharpen them. But... I just like the elegance of something sharp, I think. As for why hacky sack, I fell into it because in 10th grade, I guess it was, I was going to Air Force Academy High in Colorado Springs. It was a year that I didn't live in Texas. And let's see, I'd always hang out in the smoking circle. And I didn't smoke cigarettes, but all my friends did. And everybody in the smoking circle played hacky sack. So if you're going to stand around there, you had to be able to keep a ball going on your foot. And um, so I just kept doing it, kept doing it. And man, it carried me through a lot of years playing hacky sack. I still miss it so much. My knees and ankles have gotten kind of bad. So I can't, if I do hacky sack now, then it hurts later. I miss it a lot. But man, I love the, I love the, the elegance and the effort of just keeping a keeping a hack alive for you know a few minutes that's wonderful to me yeah yeah see i uh i played soccer a lot growing up and it's completely oh. different than hacky sack i mean you know you can juggle a soccer ball because it's yeah, yeah. you know like i don't know 20 times the size of a hacky sack but yeah, yeah man yeah. I, I i could knock you back it's like up for five seconds to save my life <laughs> yeah you know whenever um soccer players would come join one of our hacky sack circles you can always tell that they come from soccer and not not originally from hacky sack because y'all y'all guys y'all do it different. Like hacky sackers move their foot at the ankle and pop the hack the heck up, but soccer players move their leg such that their knee moves too, like the whole leg moves because the soccer ball is so much heavier. You have to do that, you know? right? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you know, and and I feel like you know hacky sack probably takes a little bit longer to kind of get a rhythm going. Whereas like a yeah. soccer ball, I mean, I mean, granted you can do it with a hacky sack too, but you know, you can kind of bounce it off just about any spot on your body. Whereas a hacky sack, you kind of have to yeah. lift it. Yeah, you do. You do. And I think you lose a lot more hacky sacks than you do soccer balls too. Like you, somebody gets exuberant in a circle and just punts it and it goes onto a roof and it's a gutter or a bird nest or something. You never see it again. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Um, so what sort of work were you in prior to teaching and writing? Let's see. I started teaching in 99. So before that, I was working at Sears. And were, well, before that, I was actually a book cataloger for a university library. And I was the I was the book cataloger whose specialty was um, gift, gift books and audiovisual material. So I got to read um, screenplays all day and make up records for them and watch sometimes watch the videos if we had those. And... I would just process all the, the junky boxes of books that people brought in. And it broke my heart because back then, university libraries wouldn't keep comic books. They were considered um, trash. And part of my job as a gift book cataloger was that I couldn't take anything home because I understand why. Because that would affect my decision of whether this was good or bad to right. keep or throw away. 
So, so I had to throw anything that I thought didn't earn a place on the shelf. I had to throw it away, and I couldn't say yes to comic books. So all the comic books would get I had to get them directly in the trash, or I'd get fired. You know, oh. it was terrible. Yeah, but um, and before that, I was um stocking. I was in the warehouse at Sears, just moving all the big stuff for a lot of years. And before that, I was a field hand for Decal Industries, which is a seed research outfit. And before that. I guess I was a field hand. I did a lot of other jobs. I was a night janitor for the biggest daycare in Texas for a while. Painted curbs, painted like numbers on curbs for a while. I was a roof estimator, um, drove a lot of tractor. I uh, worked off a horse. Um, let's see. Worked in a transmission shop for a while. Oh, I can't even remember it all. But <laughs> And I was, a, I was a dishwasher for a while too. And I love being dishwasher because at the end of the night, um, whatever on the line they didn't get ordered they would give to me you know and i would get baskets of fries and all kinds of good stuff and you know the first shift or two leftovers would come in on the plates and i'd say i'm never gonna eat that man by, by the end of that first week i was eating all the leftovers and just kind of trying to cut off where the bite marks were eating. right right <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was that, I kind of did something similar when i was a server in college and uh like at the end of the day like our I mean, I guess you could call him the head chef. It was really just the business owner. He was the cook, but he was like, all right, put your order in for what you want when you leave. And, uh, you know, it, but it's one of those things where you're walking around, you're serving all day, you're sweating. And then at the end of the day, you're like, do I really want to eat like a giant, like just box of yeah. grease, you know, <laughs> but man, you were starving. So you didn't really care. <laughs> yeah, for sure, man. For sure. I remember in, in college one summer I was, I was just dead broke. I had no money. And one of my main sources of like nutrition, or I guess nutrition is too big a word, or calories was um, I'd go through, I'd go to Long John Silver's. So I'm a, you have those in Alabama, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, you, you can order crumbs. Of the, I call them crunchies, but they call them crumbs. Like the, all the little batter that floats up to the top of the grease trap. You know, they can scoop it out with a spatula and put it into a boat. And they would give me those for a quarter. And so, like two of those would be a lunch and two of those would be a dinner, you know, and I, I somehow lived on that for all summer. <laughs> somehow you're not yeah. dead. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, uh, well, so, so kind of back to, uh, I guess the job you were doing uh, in the cataloging. So they would, they, they wouldn't like let you donate those to like, maybe like a, I don't know, like no. a thrift store or something. Nope. No, they wow. all had to go right in the dumpster. Man, there's a bummer. Uh, you, sh- you should have like you should have like found somebody to like to come and like all right I'm gonna put these in the dumpster like this time and like yeah, come by and yeah. swoop in and grab them but I'm sure they have cameras and stuff so yeah yeah I got I got a lot of I got a lot of lectures about um not scamming you know like that yeah I mean it's it's kind of the same thing about like you know if you worked in a movie theater not like letting your friends in and yeah. like, giving them free candy yeah. and stuff yeah yeah um, no, I knew I knew somebody worked in a theater and she said um I think this is my wife actually she says that. After a movie, the cleanup crew would go in and collect all the cups and um, just pour out what was in it and then resell them. They'd fill them with like more Dr. Pepper and resell them and pocket that cash because um, the what they got counted each night was cups, like how many cups got used. And they had to that had to square with the register, you know. Mm-hmm. And so it would it would still square, but they were making money selling like reusing cups, you know. Wow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it makes me not want to go back to a movie theater. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good grief. Um, so uh, 
kind of past that. So who would you say, um, I guess was a, your biggest influence in getting into writing? Um, I mean, was it, was it early on, like in school that you started writing down stuff or was it really, I guess later on in life where you decided that you wanted to, I guess, put words to a page? You know, I always, since fourth grade, I always knew I could tell a story that I could end a story, but, um, I never actually, uh, I was a philosophy major when I got to, to school and, the only reason I ended up in fiction at all was that uh, I had missed um, two or three classes of my comp two class. And I'd been sitting in an ICU with somebody and all I had with me was a spiral and a notebook and I kind of got bored and just wrote a story. And to prove to my teacher, I had done some work. I ripped those pages out of my spiral and gave them to her. This is before, you know, we had computers and word processors and all that. And or before I did anyways. And, and she read it as you know proof that I'd done some writing anyways, and she liked it, and she typed it up, and she submitted it for a departmental award, and it won that award, and I got like $150, and like my eyes lit up. I'm like, you mean you can get paid for making stuff up, you know? And so I just, I just hit the ground running, man. I just kept, kept on doing it. It was easy to tell stories, and I kept winning little prizes and getting grocery money for the next week, you know? And it all worked out, man. Wow. That's a... Uh... It's pretty neat, yeah. Um, yeah. So, so I guess, uh, do you have a particular author, or I guess, or, or authors in mind that you would say would be an influence on your writing? You know, when I, by the time I was um, twelve, I had read. At the time, there were ninety-five Louis Lamour novels, and I read all all of those by the time I was twelve. So, you know, he might be my biggest influence, really. Um, I probably am still somehow trying to tell a Louis Lamour western. You know, a stranger comes to town and has to settle a range war with a fast draw, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I was reading a whole lot of Conan as well. I had no idea that Howard was a Conan writer. I kind of thought it was Robert Jordan. I was reading all the Robert Jordan Conan. And, and, but I just read all the Conan I could get, or however I could get it. And I guess when I was about 15, I found Stephen King. I read Tommyknockers. It scared me senseless. And I fell into everything King. And not just King, but everything horror. Mm-hmm. And But I had somehow... Somehow before that, my first horror novel I read had been Whitley Stryber's Wolfman. That really imprinted on me. I still read that novel pretty regularly just to remember what it was like to feel that sense of wonder. Yeah. I gotcha. Yeah, you, when you when you when you said Conan and westerns, I was like, where in the world did he start writing horror? <laughs> I was like, this guy should be writing fantasy or western fantasy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, where do you typically find yourself writing? Oh man. Tell you the truth, it's probably airports. I do a lot of work in airports, but um, I mean, ideally, I'm in my study here, which is where I'm sitting right now, which is great. But um, I mean, it's great to be in my study. I don't know if my study is necessarily great, <laughs> but um, um, well, it's great in that it has all my horror DVDs and my Galaga and my basketballs and stuff, my comic books. But um, so this is my ideal place to write, number one, because I've got my keyboard that I like an advantage to a Kinesis advantage to, which is a weird keyboard it took me like two months to learn to write on but every at this here and at my office at work i keep this keyboard and man i can really cook on that but i can do good on a laptop too in an airport or in a in a hotel room or on an airplane i wish i could ride on the bus but i get terribly car sick mm. yeah I, I you know i hear all different kinds of stories like i was talking to uh, brian naslin he's a fantasy writer he's got a series of tour and he talks about he uh just gets on a bus and just doesn't care where it goes, but he, that's yeah. like the feeling 
uh, I guess riding in the bus allows him to just jot down words. <laughs> so he's like, see, I'll just get on a random bus one day, like on a weekend. And I, it doesn't yeah. matter where it goes, but I'll write the entire time. Oh, I just find great. it amazing. I can't, I can't look at words when I'm in a car. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I can't even like, if I'm having to GPS my way somewhere, I have to get whoever, whoever is the passenger to look at my phone. Cause I'll get sick too. Yeah. And I'm looking at this Kinesis Advantage keyboard. No wonder it took you two months to get into it. That is a weird-looking keyboard. <laughs> yeah, it is. And then I've, I've broken one of my hands like three or four times, and so it always needs like special care, you know, but this keyboard fits it well. I gotcha. I gotcha. So uh, tell me a little bit about your writing process. Do you um, – I mean, and it may have changed since, you know, your first book in 03 to now, but do you typically outline everything that you write, or do you write – a lot by the seat of your pants or is it just a mixed bag or you know i mean every novel's like you every horse you break you break different you know um i think like every 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 novel is you come at it from a different way you have plans but those plans fall apart because the novel has different needs you know <laughs> but the way i prefer to do it is just uh hear a good line i hear a voice and i just take off and find the next sentence and find the next scene the next chapter that's the way i prefer to do it act the novels have done that have um, had the longest legs have been written like that really um the novels i've done that where i've done an outline um either haven't sold or i haven't i'm, I'm trying to think if any of those got published one of them got sort of published all the beautiful centers i say sort of published it definitely got published but um that was it wasn't necessarily i did have to submit an outline to the publisher and get it approved but then that publisher also had chapter approval. So I had to mail in every chapter that I wrote so they could say, do this, don't do that. Then I have to back up and start over and all. So it was a very weird process. But I'm, I'm, I actually, I can see all my novels from here. Um, you know, the closest I've come to outlining, I think, is The Gospel of Z. I wrote that novel the first time, and it was a big old honking thing. It was probably 500 pages. I gave it to a few friends. And they all said, yes, the big novel, dude. It doesn't have no focus. And so they couldn't figure out how to make it have focus. And I couldn't figure out how to, how to make it have focus. And so what I did was I took, it took me like 10 months of really steady work. I broke that novel down into a 106-page screenplay so I could identify the dramatic line better. And then I took that screenplay and I used it as an outline to completely rewrite the novel and so I could have, so it could actually move and not be bloated. And I think it, to me, it worked out pretty well. It was an arduous process. Though. That's the only book I've done like that. I gotcha. Yeah. And and, I mean, but like with, but like with Mongrels, I knew I wasn't even writing the novel. I was just writing werewolf junk, and it all kind of happened to come together. Um, the only good Indians is the same. I wouldn't plan to write a novel. It's just um, I just was planning, I was writing something short, and then other people kept standing up and saying, "Me too. I want to be in this book." You know. <laughs> He's <laughs> like all these little voices in the back of the head, be like, "Okay, how about yeah. me? Add me." <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so I kind of want to, I guess, go through a couple of your more recent novels, uh, mostly since I've been reading your stuff, which I guess started in 2016 with Mongrels uh, mm -hmm. from William Morrow. So it's it's tabbed as a spellbinding and darkly humorous coming of age story about an unusual boy whose family lives on the fringes of society and struggles to survive in a hostile world that shuns and fears them. Mm -hmm. So can you, um, I guess, tell the audience a little bit about what that book is about and kind of how you came up with the idea of it, uh, considering it is about werewolves. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, um, well, I guess that first chapter, which is now um, The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, was originally called Doc's Story, and it was originally a, sto- a short story. What happened was my friend Jesse Bullington was doing an anthology called Letters to Lovecraft, and it was he wanted us all to write a story that somehow stemmed out of Lovecraft's long essay um, supernatural horror fiction or something like something with those words in it. It's about 70 or 80 page thing. And I happened to have it on my Kindle at the time. And I think he called me on the phone maybe. And so I pulled my Kindle out and I did a word search in that Lovecraft document and I searched for the word werewolf and it shows up once. And once I knew that was there, I said, I told Jesse, I said, sure, I'll write something because I knew I can write about werewolves, you know? And so then I forgot to do it for like a month or two. And Jesse sent me an email or called me or something. And he said, hey, man, that story is due tomorrow. I just want to make sure you've got it. And I'm like, oh, yeah. And so I went and ate a whole jug of um, chocolate-covered sunflower seeds for energy. And I wrote the doc story in like three and a half hours or something. Turned it in. I thought I'm done with that. But it kind of got me thinking about werewolves. And so I proposed to my department that I teach a werewolf course the next fall. This was um, this was like the fall of 2014, possibly, somewhere around there. And and they said, they thought about it, and they said, sure. And I got some research funds to prep for the course. And with those research funds, I just bought everything that had werewolf in the front of it, you know, movies, um, books, comic books, action figures, everything I can think of. Everything I can find is a werewolf. I bought it. And for all of December, from December 1 to December 31, I just inhaled every bit of werewolf stuff I could. And I told myself, one month and done, you know? And so come January 1st, I knew I was done with the research, but my head was just packed to bursting with werewolf junk. And so I started, I took up that dot story, and I said, what if this was first? And I thought, I'm going to write a series of stories, and I'll publish them all in different journals, and people will be able to follow this werewolf family from journal to journal, from magazine to magazine. And I was doing that, just writing werewolf stories, and... Then I discovered I could do those little flash fiction pieces between the werewolf stories, which kept um, the reader from expecting strict continuity from the end of one chapter to the beginning of the next. And so then it, it, I realized that it all stacked together in a novel. And so by January 14th, I was done. You know, um, And this was actually my third try to try to write a werewolf novel. My first try was back in 1999. Bloodlines, which I finished it, but it wasn't good, so my agent didn't send it out. The second try had been in 2013, I think it was, a novel called The Lord's Highway, which I still kind of want to write. Maybe it's a novella. I don't know. It's set down in Alpine, Texas, and deals with werewolves. But um, the problem I had with that novel, I quit that novel instead of finishing it, was that I think I had 120, 140 pages of it down, and I realized all I was doing was looking pretty werewolf so I wasn't actually telling the story and so I made myself quit because nobody's going to indulge you if you're looking at pretty werewolves you know and and so instead of writing that I wrote the comic book my hero for the rest of that little two or three month stretch or whatever and but then I finally got it together enough and my girls gelled and so my third try at writing a werewolf novel finally came together I gotcha yeah it um ended up being kind of one of those titles that came by me by way of Paul Tremblay because I feel like yeah. a lot of novels end up coming my way because of him, especially horror novels. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
he just, uh, you know, every time I get on Goodreads and, and there's something that Paul Trimble, I get five stars to him. I'm like, okay, let me check it out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, Paul's definitely got his pulse on the, or his thumb on the pulse of war, for sure. Yeah, yeah, and that, that kind of leads me to the next one. So mapping the interior was the next great mm-hmm. item I from uh, Tour.com back in 2017. And mm-hmm. uh, and Paul actually, he called it a triumph. He says, it's so emotionally raw, disturbing, creepy, and brilliant. You will not be unmoved. You will not be unaffected. And it's a ghost story in the truest, darkest, most melancholy sense. And uh, I have to agree. <laughs> it, uh, you know, it's one of those where I started reading it um i'd actually taken it with me like on a vacation and i started reading it and i kind of set it to the side and then of course you know uh ended up going out on the beach and coming back and i go okay i feel like i need to start it over because i don't know if i quite grasp where it's going and so then i, I picked it back up i'm like all right i'm just gonna I'm just gonna sit here i'm gonna read the entire thing because it's only like i don't know like 120 130 yeah. pages and um it was absolutely phenomenal. I was like, okay, so Stephen Graham Jones is officially, I've got to read everything he comes out with from now on. <laughs> this, is, this is how it's going to be. So, um, but tell, tell the audience a little bit about what it is, what it entails, what it's about, maybe a short synopsis about it. Um, Mapping Interior is uh, a mom and two kids living just out, out in the pasture town, which was like, I was always my mom and me and my little brother when we, when we were young anyways. And just trying to, trying to make it and it turns out that the kid's father who died on the reservation a few years back crosses the living room one night while the while the older brother is in the living room and the brother the the, the kid knows that his dad is dead he knows this has got to be some sort of um, ghost or specter or some some sort of vision something bad or something scary anyway the dad's wearing his old or what would have been his fancy dancing outfit. And so the kid spends the rest of the time trying to figure his dad out while his dad is kind of preying upon the family. Um, you know, my, my impulse with mapping the interior was to write a ghost story that had teeth, I guess, because ghosts to me in fiction and horror, horror stories anyways, they're really, they tend to just be um, exposition deliverers. They're just there to tell you a story about somebody who got killed or something that happened in this barn or they can they can startle you in a hallway, make you spill your milk or something, but they don't actually hold any threat because I don't even know how ghosts down the floor. They should just fall through the second story down to the first story and keep on going to the basement. You know, um, it's like they it's like what keeps them um, on the floor is our belief that they have solidity, but they don't. They're 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 specters. They're made of nothing. And so to me, that's not scary. All they have that they can they can do any damage is words, is information exposition and so i had to come or i told myself i had to come up with a way to make the ghost scary and the way i could make the ghost scary was to make it hungry to make it um trying to make it be trying to become corporeal you know mm-hmm. yeah and uh i mean i think you did it thank you yeah and and you know the i mean in the title for it i mean really leads to exactly kind of what the son does. I mean, he literally maps out the entire, the entirety of the home he lives in, in the, the exterior under it, everything around it. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's just, it's just like, it's so raw and, uh, and you don't, I guess you don't see a whole lot of stories that are, I guess kind of really peel back the layers like it did, um, oh. especially in like a shorter form of fiction. So, well, thank you. Um, thank you. 
Um, you know, I, want, I wonder if I didn't get that title um, from Benjamin Percy's novel, The Deadlands, which is like a post-apocalyptic Lewis and Clark, because um, Lewis and Clark were mapping the interior, supposedly, you know, the northern North American continent. Um, when did his book, his book came out in 2015, I guess, and this novel came out, this novella came out in 2017. So yeah, I, I read, I think I read Ben's, Benjamin's novel in, in, in early form, too. Yeah, so maybe maybe that's where the title comes from. I don't even know. I think, but it, I feel like it had been bouncing around in my head for a while too. Um, I have a journal thing posted on my site, mapping the interior of mapping the interior, because um, when I, I wrote it in like four days, I guess, and I kind of kept a log of each writing session, and maybe somewhere in there I say where the title comes from. I don't know. I gotcha. That's impressive writing it in four days. Oh well, yeah. Thanks. I, I I jumble a couple of pages within a week. I can't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So kind of moving on to uh, your next couple of reads that are coming out. So uh, first off, we've got the Only Good Indians that's coming from Saga on May nineteenth. So this is a book that I read. Gosh, it feels like almost a year ago, but it was it's probably mm-hmm. probably I don't know, five or six months ago. Uh, ended up actually yeah. being my number two read last year. Um, and, uh, would, would be probably one of my top reads this year if I'd actually read it this year, but, um, but yeah, it's a, it's a phenomenal novel, very, uh, subtle horror elements and then some that are actually straight up in your face. Uh, but it's also a very emotional character driven story that, um, I mean, I, I kind of would push out to anybody and everybody that's out there, but, uh, just kind of, can you give the audience a little bit of what they could expect from the novel? And, um, I guess kind of drive the pre-orders <laughs> yeah yeah you know um the only good indians is four four guys are out up hunting on the reservation one afternoon what they what what they're thinking is the last day of, of the hunt and on the last day of the hunt all the like um sportsmen's like sportsman like ethics you've been possibly clinging to for the whole hunt kind of go away because you don't want to come out of the field empty-handed you know it's a, it's a bad day to make good decisions. I guess is what I'm saying. And they make a, they do make a bad decision. And it, it, only one of them is kind of haunted by it. The rest of them is just another day out after elk, you know. But ten years later, the result of that bad decision comes up and comes after them, and they have to pay in blood. And not just them, but the people around them. It's which is a slasher build, of course, you know. And, you know, one thing about slashers, I love slashers, it's my favorite genre, um, but one hesitation I always have around them or about them is the final, like, well, what a slasher is, is there's a prank or a crime or a trespass, and then a spirit of vengeance rises to rebalance the scales of justice, and then a final girl rises to put down that spirit of vengeance, that slasher, to get things back to steady again. And in most slashers, the final girl, in order to win the physical confrontation at the end of the the story, she has to um, adopt traditionally male-coded characteristics. She has to be able to swing the machete the hardest, or be the dirtiest fighter, or that, you know that kind of stuff. It's, it becomes basically an arm wrestling match, and muscles are not what's gotten her through her life necessarily. What's gotten her through her life are the inbuilt characteristics and qualities she has. And so, with the only good Indians the pressure I put on myself, the same way I had that pressure I put on myself about mapping the interior to make a ghost scary was what if a final girl rose who 
was able to win the day without sacrificing her identity, which is to say, what if she were able to use compassion instead of muscles, you know? And that's, that's, that's probably my big push, I guess, with the only good Indians. I gotcha. Yeah, I ended up uh, in my review, see if I can actually find <laughs> where, where, I, where my, my big blurbish thing is. Um, so, yeah, I, I said I have to agree with Entertainment Weekly that you are officially the Jordan Peele of horror fiction. Uh, and I said, the only good Indians is an extremely unsettling masterpiece that's destined for the big screen. It's a horror novel that will chill you to the bone, one that will also leave you with a profound sense of hope. I feel like that, that kind of summed it up a good bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, thank you. Thank you and I just realized in my review that uh, I guess they changed the the cover on Goodreads and it deleted it. So I'm going to go, go edit it. So good thing we're having this chat. Oh, um, wow. <laughs> well, when I, when, when Saga originally put it up, which I know they've changed some hands in their publicity here, I guess fairly recently, uh, when it was originally up, like it was, uh, it was too big for the screen. And so oh, really? I guess they went in and edited it and made it smaller and put in a different image. Oh, wow. So they just completely trashed it. So. Oh, wow. That's crazy. Yeah. yeah. I mean, just, just, a, just about three or four hours ago, I saw the final cover for the whole wraparound cover for the hardback. And it's beautiful. It's yeah. really, there's like the, just what we see, the image, you know, is pretty cool, but the wraparound is very cool and with all the words on all the blurbs and everything. Yeah, it's very cool. That's awesome. Yeah, I know that that cover is just it's very stunning. Uh, I think it's very very eye catching, you know, because it's it's got uh, the dark and the light tones on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's yeah. fantastic. Um, all right, so and then uh, kind of next up for your releases, you've got another novella from tour.com called Night of the Mannequins coming out mm-hmm. in July. Um, so mm-hmm. this is one that I've seen the cover reveal, I know it's been out for, for a bit as far as the cover goes, mm-hmm. but um, can you tell, tell us a little bit about it? Um, maybe give us a little synopsis on it because I know that's one that I'm definitely looking forward to. Well, thank you. I'm trying to see that you get an early copy or early digital copy or something, but um. Um, Night of the Mannequins is four high schoolers pull a prank at a theater, movie theater, um, one night. And that prank is, I don't think it's over-spoiling. This is kind of the first chapter, but they smuggle a mannequin into the theater and try to scare the, the manager, the assistant manager of the theater with it. But then things don't go as they planned. And turns out that, um, there may be something after them now, and they have to they have to try to survive, I guess, you know. And of course, not everybody does, not everybody can in a slasher. You know, the and the thing I wanted to do with this slasher was um not problematize. I wanted to I wanted to see if there was a different way to tell a slasher, you know. And I had to crawl inside the slasher in a way that I haven't had to with other stories. I had to crawl in from an angle that I haven't done it like with the last final girl, you know, or demon theory. And it was really productive. I like, I, I like where the novel ended up a lot. You know, it was a lot of fun for me today. I'm really proud that I was able to do a type of slasher that I don't think has been done before. Yeah. And the, the slasher is quite a varied genre. It seems like, you know, the pressure to earn box office dollars has resulted in crazy people trying crazy outlandish stuff. You know, you see slashers that are um, all doing all, there's all kinds of permutations of slashers, but as near as I know, and I do know a whole lot of slashers, I haven't seen one that adopts this manner of 
development anyway. I gotcha. Yeah. Um, so as, as far as, you know, your writing goes, as you're, you know, I mean, you've been perfecting your craft for years now, it seems, but, um, you know, do you enjoy more doing longer fiction? Do you enjoy doing shorter fiction? Cause maybe you can type it out quicker or do you just kind of like doing, I guess like a combo of both throughout the year? You know, I think I just like living in made up worlds and whether I'm doing that in a novel or a flash fiction or a comic book script or a television script or a movie script, all those to me are made up worlds and any excuse or reason I can use to hang out in that made up world. That's what I want to do because the real world to me never makes sense. But on the page, I can make the world make sense by a few pages at a time anyways. And so that's always kind of what I prefer. Um, but as for my favorite mode or genre, that's a hard call. You know, I, I love flash fiction. That's one of the, I hold flash fiction really dear and really close to my heart. Mm. I love it because, um, with flash fiction, the reader's expectations don't necessarily shape the story, which is to say the person writing flash fiction isn't trying to satisfy what someone is expecting is going to happen because in a flash fiction story, the rules are completely off. You have like 750 words and it's winter fail, it's winter go home. And I, I like that too. But there's so many, you can do a story as a recipe. You can do a story as a letter. You can, there's so many cool, cool ways to tell a story like that. And I think I, I, I like to think anyways, that the, the, like the possibilities of innovation that you can really live in with flash fiction, I like to bring some of that attitude or angle into novels as well and do unconventional builds, you know? Mm -hmm. I gotcha. Yeah. I'm always curious because, you know, with, with you having, you know, two novellas out in a couple of years and then you've got a couple mm -hmm. of, um, of longer fiction novels. I mean, you know, I'm always curious if you like one better than the other, or if it just really depends on, you know, how long is the story going to take to tell itself you know, how can mm -hmm. I find, you know, from point A to yeah. point Z? Uh, and yeah. then, you know, have, have you have you thought about, you know, what your magnus opus would be? Like, your, you know, your 800 page, <laughs> uh, you know, The Stand or Wanderers? Yeah, yeah. You know? yeah I don't, man, I, I do think about that sometimes. I'm never going to write a book, you know, that's, that's that big. And, you know, of all the big books, my two favorites that I've read anyways are um, Stephen King's It. And Larry Mercury's Vault and Dove, or also I guess it's sequel Streets on the Radio. Those are my two favorites as far as really big books go. And it's not that I don't have ideas that big or that long. Um, I just, you know, and I, I just a couple of years ago I wrote a novel that was 150,000 words long, which is kind of long. But I just, I just wrote a slasher that was 120,000 words long, and then I went in and cut 10,000 out of it. I'll probably cut some more. So I don't, man, I don't know. I, what would it, what, what is my, um, if I do a big work, what will that big work be? I can't even, can't even take a distant stab. I'm, I feel like with my novel Demon Theory, I've already at least approached that because that's a, I don't even know how many words that goes, but it's a pretty big novel and it's just got layers and layers of footnotes. And it's, uh, what Demon Theory is, is a series of, novelizations based on a trilogy of horror movies that never actually happened you know and so if, i guess if i am going to do another 
book of that size, it would probably be very similar to Demon Dairy. It would be horror with a lot of horror genres in it. I gotcha. It'd be pretty neat. Um, I, you know, I, I'm always wondering because I know you know some some authors, especially like debut authors, will try to put out like some massive work, and sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't because. Yeah, you, know, yeah. you never know with, with debuts how good they're going to be. And you're like, do I have the time to invest in an 800 page, yeah. you know, page epic? Um, yeah. And then, yeah. you know, I mean, what's that? It's, it's easy. It's, e- it's easy to write 800 pages. It's hard to write 800 good pages. Right. <laughs> yeah. But you can sit there and just, you know, plot away. And then, at the, you know, yeah. you get somebody to read it and they go, I don't understand where this is going. Yeah. <laughs> so um, can you give a hint as to what you're working on now? Yeah, I just finished a novel. I wrote it over December and January, uh, Lake Access Only, which actually in 2007, I wrote a novel called Lake Access Only, and it didn't work, and I knew it didn't work. And so then in 2017, yeah, it's probably 2017, uh, took the elements of that novel and wrote a completely different novel. It was about twice as big. And it still didn't work. My agent sent it out, and editors told us it doesn't work, you know. And so, uh, the last couple of months, uh, tore it down to nothing and built it up again. And I think right now it's about seventy-five percent working. And I'm going into revisions in the next week and a half or two weeks with some like good advice and a good um, angle to come into it and reform it. And I think it's finally going to find its natural shape. And I'm really happy it's a slasher for it. <laughs> of course. <laughs> um, so uh, anything that you've, uh, that you've read lately that you would recommend to the audience? Oh, yeah. Well, I'm really, I'm really right now looking forward to reading, um, what is it, Rachel Harrison's The Return, which isn't out yet. And... I just got all my catsies the deep and I'm super excited about that. And I just got Daniel Krause's Bent Heavens. Um, and I just got an early copy of his Living Dead too, which is, you know, that George Romero novel, which yeah. should be super cool. Talking big book, like a big book too. I know, it really is. <laughs> um, and um, let's see, yeah, I've already read Paul's Survivor song, which is excellent, of course. It's a wonderful, like, beat by beat documentation of the plague kind of crossing through a community, through a town, through a nation, which is kind of um, apt for this moment. Right. And Grady Hendrix's, um, what is it? The sub, let's see, what's it called? I always get the, I keep getting the, I keep getting it backwards. The Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires. Yeah, that's it. And that book is, um, it's got a lot of emotional punch to it and pretty killer vampire too. Um, Man, what else? Let me think. Um, Adam Cesar's Clown in the Cornfield is good slasher fun. Man, Adam knows he knows the slasher really, really well. And it's a pleasure to read him. Some pretty cool developments in that novel, too. And, man, what is that? Five or six books already? What else is there? I say it's pretty impressive because normally people find it really hard to figure out what they're reading or they don't have time. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I just I just finished um, James S. Corey's Leviathan Lakes, which is like the first novel of the Expanse series, and I was really impressed with the um, thinking going on there. Just the I say the thinking is it's kind of like Dan Simmons' Hyperion kind of thinking, where you imagine 
what spacefaring culture would be like. And it's not just about technology. It's just about how um, how different it's going to be and also how similar. And he really does that to a high, high degree. And it's super impressive. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I actually um... – so I've got a like an early copy of the uh, the Seven Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires, mm. and I actually ordered the uh, the Nightworms package that that comes with it. Oh yeah, uh, Tim Levin's Eden, Eden, and yeah. um, and I'm actually I'm reading Eden right now because because Titan sent me a copy. But uh, I uh, I love Survivor Song uh, by Trey yeah. Boy. Oh, it was yeah. really good, and uh, I'm actually I'm about a quarter of the way through Clown Cornfield by Caesar. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and Living Dead, I think I'll probably be reading that one here fairly soon. But yeah, it, it is it is kind of a beast to tame. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. It is. It's probably one of the the longer books that I've that I've had since probably Chuck Wendig's Wanderers. So oh yeah yeah, yeah. Um, um go ahead yeah oh well, let's see what I was gonna say oh Daniel Pierce um his writers is a really good good novel if you ever get a chance okay yeah I've, yeah. I've got. Uh, I guess I think you mentioned Bent Heavens. I've got that on um, on audio, and I've seen a yeah. few people really rave about it. So I'll have to. I'll have to yeah. I think that's a that's a YA uh, kind of horror yeah. uh, novel that he's got out. Well, see, I just finished uh, Mallory by Mallerman uh, yesterday mm-hmm. and posted my mm-hmm. review today. It's like super, you know, non spoilery, but like I couldn't mm-hmm. like wait to put words to you know words to a yeah. page. Um, but yeah. it's it is amazing. If you read Bird Box, like it's it's yeah. way yeah. better than Bird Box. Oh wow! That's yeah, high, it's high really price. good. Yeah. Well, uh, I got super jealous because uh, I think his editor sent like Jonathan Jans and a couple other people like super early, like I guess pre edit mm-hmm. copies. And mm-hmm. uh, and I had had Josh on my podcast back in December, and he just kind of graciously bestowed an early copy on me. And I was like, all right, I just got to yeah. tear into yeah. this real quick. Um, but yeah, yeah if, if you end up getting an early copy of that, I, I highly recommend it. Yeah. It's, it's only about 290 pages. So, um, yeah, yeah Josh, Josh, Josh does good stuff. He sure. really does. And he's a super nice guy too. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, yeah he has a good dude. Yeah, yeah. I, I found that out. And then, uh, I don't know if you've read any of Andy Davidson stuff, but it kind of, kind of yeah, reminds yeah. me of, uh, of kind of like your writing style. Yeah. Uh, but the Bowman's yeah. daughter is really good if you haven't read it. Yeah, yeah, I blurbed his first one, and it was set in West Texas, even. Yeah, the, in the Valley oh. of the Sun? Yeah, it felt yeah. like home, you know. Yeah. I'm sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, awesome, man. That's that's a heck of a that's a heck of a group of books. I, I agree with every single one of them. So. <laughs> that's a, that's a, I, mean, I mean, and a lot of them obviously don't come out for a little while. I mean, I know Clinton of Cornfield's, like, I think probably the latest of, the, of that grouping, but there's oh, definitely yeah. a lot yeah. to look forward to, especially – uh, if you enjoy horror, and I still have to read the Expanse, I haven't. Yeah. Even, I've got all of them, and haven't even touched them. So. <laughs> yeah, I feel. I feel like it's just because I'm sitting there looking. I'm like, man, it's seven books. Like, do I have the time? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Well, well, Stephen, I uh, I really appreciate you being on and taking the time of your day. I mean, this was like a super quick turnaround from when we started chatting the other day. Mm-hmm. So. I thought, I thought it was pretty neat that, that you were able to, to accommodate me so quickly. But everybody that's listening in, uh, you can find Stephen on Twitter at SGJ72. Uh, you can also find his blog at demontheory.net. Uh, and kind of to rehash, uh, his novels Mongrels and Mapping the Interior are both currently available everywhere. 
the upcoming The Only Good Indians, which I highly recommend above pretty much any other novel so far that's been published this year, uh, comes out May 19th. And then Night of the Mannequins, which is from Tor.com, will hit July 14th. But, man, we're I am I know for one that I'm looking forward to your slasher that you're talking about. I, I, I'm oh, super you. excited about anything that you've got coming out. So we'll uh, – We'll definitely be looking forward to those, and let's uh, let's do this again sometime. Yeah, this was a great time, man. Thanks for talking. Absolutely, and uh, well, I'm I'm glad uh, you you get to uh, work from home and stay safe and stay yeah. healthy. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. and hopefully, this will be over in a couple of weeks. Man, that's the dream. Huh? <laughs> well, sounds good, mm-hmm. man. Will you uh you enjoy the rest of your night? Have a great rest of your week, and uh, like I said, let's uh, let's chat again. All right, man. Thank you. Thanks, man. Hope you guys enjoyed my chat with author Stephen Graham Jones. Stay tuned this weekend when I talk to thriller writer John Mars and audiobook narrator Peter Kinney. Uh, And next week, I've got author James Rollins. We'll be talking about his upcoming novel, The Last Odyssey, which continues his Sigma Force novels. Uh, But guys, thanks again for tuning in and chat at you next time.